1: Hello, you are listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and I'm here to talk uh, to talk with Andrew R. Polk about his new book, Faith and Freedom: Propaganda, Presidential Politics, and the Making of an American Religion, published by Cornell University Press, 2021. In Faith and Freedom, Andrew R. Polk argues that the American civil religion, so many have identified as indigenous to the founding ideology of the country, was in fact the result of a strategic campaign of religious propaganda. Far from being the natural outgrowth of the nation's religious underpinning, or later, spiritual machinations of conservative Protestants, American civil religion and the resultant Christian nationalism of today were crafted by secular elites in the middle of the 20th century. Polk's genealogy of a national motto, In God We Trust, revises the very meaning of the contemporary American nation. Polk shows how presidents FDR, Harry S. Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower worked with politicians, advertising executives, and military public relations experts exploited denominational religious affiliations and beliefs in order to unite Americans during the Second World War and then the early Cold War. Faith and Freedom is a pioneering work of American religious history by assessing the ideas, policies, and actions of three U.S. presidents, the White House, and their White House staff. Polk shed light, Sheds Light on the Origins of the Ideological, Religious, and Partisan Divides that Describe the American Polity Today. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast today to talk about your wonderful and highly researched new book. Thank you, Jackson. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yes. So a first question before we get into the content of the book, just tell me a little bit about your academic background and how that contributed or led to the writing of this book, Faith and Freedom.
0: Yeah, thanks. It, it was not a straight path. Um, I have, uh, my, my first uh, master's was in biblical studies. I did second temple Judaism, especially demonology, which is as fascinating as it sounds, but at like the fifth language, I decided to become an Americanist. Uh, so I I went to uh, Yale divinity and, uh, studied American religious history, uh, and then Florida State University where I got my doctorate. Uh, and it was, in some sense, just a kind of a crashing together of a lot of interests that I had. Uh, One of my uh, mentors, Skip Stout, Harry S. Stout, uh, has done a lot of work on religion and war. Uh, I was really interested in that. Uh, I've always been fascinated in in religion and politics. Uh, Randy Ballmer, another mentor of mine, and it all kind of came together with uh, the brilliant Amanda Porterfield, uh, who said, hey, No one's really looked at what's happening in World War II. Why don't you look at that, right? A lot of people, by the way, have looked at World War II. But religion in World War II has been uh, missing to some degree. And when I started looking into that, to my surprise, quite honestly, uh, what I found was a whole lot of what we talk about, we think about in like the 1980s or late 1970s, moral majority religious right, but all of that was coming primarily not from religious leaders, but from politicians and advertising executives and in military public relations or what they specifically call themselves propagandists. And, and as I dove into that, um, what I found surprisingly was that much of what we think about in the 80s is in large part uh, reusing, perhaps regurgitating uh, stuff that happened two decades beforehand. Uh, so that's how I started looking into how did that happen? What what is going on here? Uh, and it all came back to the White House, uh, and I thought that itself was uh, was interesting and relevant to the way we talk about religion and politics.
1: So before we jump right into the, the the White House origin, as you say, of this faith and freedom, tell me a little bit about what faith and freedom exactly is as a concept. Yeah. It. By
0: the end, it became uh, kind of a, a focal point, some type of uh, a system, a, a myth of American religion and American history. Uh, but it didn't get there easily, mostly because uh, there were a bunch of power players that couldn't necessarily agree on what it was. Uh, right? We, it would be really neat history to have some type of a dark, smoky room, right? some Illuminati that come back and manipulate. It just wasn't true. Uh, there were a lot of politicians, business leaders who were a part of this, but they didn't all agree on what was together. The core elements of it uh, that were pretty consistent over these three administrations was the idea that at, at the heart of America, despite all its differences, there was religious unity. Right? And there were, were intense discussions over this, right? The, especially during World War II when it started. How do you unite, how do you do, unite Americans who are all so different? You can't use class, you can't use ethnicity, you can't use race, right? So how do you do it? Well, what they decided, I would argue naively, is, but in the end, aren't all Americans have the same religion? You're either Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, and they're all kind of the same thing. And so we have this to work with. Um, And then as they grew it, when they said all Americans are the same, we worship the same God, as they crafted, in some sense, who that God was and what the worship was, they started adding the elements, right? Why do we, what are we uniting people for? Once we were past the war effort, then it became a big question. We still want to do this. And their conclusions were, uh, in this new world, post-World War II, one, uh, it is the, the idea of religion was really religious freedom. In not separation of church and state, but this kind of mystical Judeo-Christian religion that, by the way, did not only began in the 1930s. Judeo-Christian wasn't a thing before. It was relatively new. So that Judeo-Christian tradition, that religious freedom uh, combined and is the thing that, that held to free market capitalism and an expansion of the military, a large standing army. Uh, which used to be anathema in in American history. And then the fourth element that tied into it, uh, really because of the context and circumstances and quite blatantly, the uh, racist tropes of the people who created it, was you do not talk about racial injustice. So much so that that was not only patriotic, but somehow a type of spiritual virtue unto itself. If you are a true American who loved God and loved the country, uh, America is not a divided place. Don't divide us. Right. I mean, you can hear these types of ideas that, again, were repeated in the 80s and have been repeated in the past five years. Uh, But it's from the 1940s and 50s. And that became the American ideal, religious Uh, freedom, religious values, religious virtues, were about those other three political objectives. uh, And it all got tied in together.
1: One of the kind of, I think, incendiary or provocative aspects of your title, and you, you mentioned this as something that the participants in this construction of faith and freedom agreed to, was that they were promoting propaganda, or they were propagandists, how are you conceiving of propaganda i think in you know post in our kind of post orwellian notion of propaganda it is kind of evil and always false and thought controlling and there are elements that you agree that it's true but but what what is propaganda to these ad executives and presidential figures and uh, army folk
0: yeah i i mean in some sense it can get Technical. Right. And, and we're looking at it, as you said, in a time period in which even in this really 20 year period that I'm covering the not necessarily the concept of propaganda, but kind of the, the social and political feeling about propaganda changed over time. Right. Congress passed laws that propaganda is something that we do out there. Right. We can have, uh, you know, radio programs in Europe. Right. And we're trying to move beyond the Iron Curtain. That's where we do propaganda. But don't do it to the American public. And part of the reason is because some of the campaigns that I talk about in the book. Uh, I mean, the, the U.S. military censured or the, the U.S. Congress censured the military for what they called quote, domestic propaganda campaigns. Uh, The military, by the way, just took that said, no, we don't do that anymore, took the same budget into something else in a different name. But in their understanding, propaganda was not the nefarious connotation necessarily that we think of it. Uh, Propaganda was the way to to create uh, what we would call a worldview, right, a paradigm, a sense even of feelings towards ideas or objects or policies. Uh, And it was something that they conceived of, it can be a good. Right. That we're fighting to use more modern ideas. Right. Hearts and minds. We're fighting for hearts and minds. Well, you know, when the Bush administration talks about hearts and minds in Iraq, it was similar to the way that the the Truman administration talked about winning in hearts and minds on the home front. Right. In America, we need to teach people what America it is because we're fighting this godless enemy of the communists and they're coming after us. And so people need to understand what America is and and what Americans should be. And it wasn't seen as nefarious. It was, it was in some sense responsibility. Uh, and so they went through it and I get that uh, certainly people would say the idea of religious propaganda is, is problematic to some degree, Uh, but the people in their day and time specifically called what they were doing propaganda, right? they, it wasn't a bad thing to them. They called themselves this. That's what they were. They sold themselves to it. We'll help you with your propaganda, because it was, in some sense, good propaganda or propaganda to positive purposes. Uh, but again, by the really fifties to mid fifties, uh, most of the political establishment shied away from propaganda. Uh, they were just doing influence campaigns or indoctrination, right? Um, but to them, propaganda was good if it's used for good purposes.
1: When I was a student at Vanderbilt University, the library is full of uh, posters from the World War II anti-fascist posters. And we all agree that those posters are correct, uh, talking about for civil liberties and free discourse. But nonetheless, the, those posters are propagandistic. Uh, and and so I think even, even people today would say there is good kinds of propaganda that needs to be disseminated. So going to the White House, your book begins with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He He's attempting to foster religious unity. For, so for two questions, why is he doing this? And then what challenges or obstacles does he face when he tries to forge this religious unity?
0: Yeah, he, he's trying to do it initially before America enters the Second World War, so the the war is raging in Europe. He becomes convinced that America is going to enter the war. There's no way to avoid this. the The American populace disagreed with him, Uh, but that was part of his challenge. How how do I unify Americans towards the war effort, Um, and in some sense push them into this? Have an idea of what America is, and therefore why we need to fight uh, in this conflict. And as I said, there it there was debate over how you unify Americans and what they came down with was religion. Uh, Roosevelt was an Episcopalian. He had a lot of those kind of liberal mainline Protestant ideas. He, he came up in a time where, uh, even, uh, in Protestant and as a whole, a lot of those denominations that had split, uh, during or before the civil war were now coming together in the thirties and forties. They, they were remerging together in the, The language of this was always about religious unity. And so he decided the way is to unite these factions. Catholics, Protestants, and Jews together are all the same thing. And we at least can agree on this. The this changed with him a little bit. Uh, But in his mind, it was at least religious freedom. That religion is good for the world. And therefore, he set about doing that. I I begin the book with uh, his Christmas letters uh, he, he wrote letters to who he decided were the three representatives of Catholicism, Protestantism and Judaism uh, and it was weird I mean to uh, um, the the rep- the Jewish representative he talked about the great story of Christmas and how that' bring- it was just it's almost nonsensical in, in today's idea. But it, it did not work. There was fragmenting. He wanted to move away. Part of this was his own naivete, to be honest. Um, he, he somehow believed this idea that everyone's getting along and it's fine. And he quickly found out, no, there are massive differences. There's a reason. There's just this massive change in American Protestantism versus and with Catholicism, with and against Judaism, right? All of this was coming in together. Uh, so... It was both his misunderstanding of what unity could mean religiously and also, quite frankly, a bunch of religious leaders and institutions that did not feel the president of the United States could and should talk about religion the way that he was. That was their field. They had no problem telling him what he should do politically, but if there was going to be a cross of that great wall of separation between church and state, it only went one way. Uh, religious leaders could talk to political leaders, but political leaders should not tell religious leaders what to do. And then there was Pearl Harbor and we were in the Second World War and almost all of America went to war. And the thing that seemed so absurd before the war, in large measure, most of those religious leaders hopped on board. And and they had revival meetings with the American troops and they published all of these uh, periodicals and their own Bibles. And, and they were sent out by the War Department. There was no issue with this whatsoever. Uh, but the idea was Americans are all united by our faith. And it was stumbling and bumbling and wasn't terribly coherent. Uh, but Roosevelt kept hitting problems when he he worked explicitly with religious institutions, when he he told them what we should all be doing, and they just would not play along.
1: One common theme, kind of taking a, a step back from the book, is that all three presidents—you mentioned this with FDR—are unaware of theological niceties of religious doctrine. What, was it? Was it was it just their individual contexts, or was there something? You mentioned this with kind of liberal mainline. Was there just something in American religiosity that led to all three men having? Either, either ignorance of or an aversion to, especially in the Truman and Eisenhower's case, of theology, religious beliefs, religious distinctions?
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to know for sure. Um, certainly there was some naivete or simply personal ideas that are, are associated with it. Um, that, if nothing else, was the consistency really between uh, those three presidents, which didn't terribly have a lot else in common. Uh, But they both agreed that those religious, theological, uh, doctrinal differences were just kind of irrelevant. They just didn't care for different reasons. Uh, Roosevelt believed in kind of the Episcopalian big umbrella type of ideas. Uh, Truman was raised Baptist, but just he really hated religious institutionalism and and all of this uh, religious. structures that didn't allow people to practice as they felt, uh, and Eisenhower was similar. He he was not baptized till after the election. He became a Presbyterian famously, and, and he constantly upheld these religious ideas, but he could not stand these doctrinal squabbles. He, he thought they were insane. The other aspect of it is those theological and doctrinal differences were irrelevant to the thing they were trying to do. It just didn't fit their purposes. It wasn't that they thought they were necessarily bad or they it just it didn't matter. What they were trying to do was convince and/or remind Americans, they use that term sometimes, that we were all together in the things that mattered. And the things that mattered were there was a God that we should worship God at the synagogue or church of our choice in whatever way that you wanted to, right? Liturgy was irrelevant to them. But that common worship of God strengthened America so that it could be the freest nation on earth and have free market capitalism to become an economic power, a large standing army to keep peace throughout the world. Isn't that what God wants us to do? And that, too, because that was America's providential purpose, anything that undermined or weakened America was unpatriotic and sinful to some sense. Uh, And so those doctrinal differences were simply bad. They were irrelevant. They they didn't help America and therefore didn't advance the will of God. And that's all they cared about.
1: So FDR uh, runs into problems and troubles with not only major Jewish and Catholic religious figures, but also the FCC, which is now the NCC, the Federal Council of Churches. Uh, he then goes to the you know, Office of War Information and elsewhere. How does Harry Truman build off his predecessor's policy, unifying policy of religion through these non-religious institutions? And then also, how did, how did Harry Truman kind of go in different directions than FDR? Obviously, Harry Truman had more time to develop this, but what are some of the key, key similarities and differences that Truman was doing with this faith and freedom policy?
0: Yeah. I mean, really the answer to both questions is the advertising council So this was a group that was started during uh, the Second World War. They called themselves the War Advertising Council. Uh, It was really a a bunch of advertising executives worried that the federal government was going to shut them down. Um, When you're trying to convince Americans to grow victory gardens and to spend less and to do uh, an industry whose entire job was to get people to buy things they may or may not need seems to be antithetical to that. And so these ad executives got together and said, well, the best way to counteract this is we, we're really good at telling people things, convincing them of things. Why don't we just volunteer to help the government? And so they did. Uh, and the War Adver- Advertising Council was responsible for a lot of the, the slogans and things that went, Rosie the Riveter, uh, right, Smokey the Bear, Loose Lips, Sink Ships, all of these things. That was all the advertising council. And they told the U.S. government, "What do you want us to tell the American people? What do you want the American people to know and believe?" And we'll do it. And and they were really good at it. There was also also as you mentioned the um, uh, the Office of War Information. Uh, they were specifically within the U.S. government, their propaganda arm, intentionally for that. Uh, but they got on the wrong side of especially a bunch of Southern Democrats in Congress. Because when they talked about unity, they started to talk about racial unity and that we need to have liberty and freedom and treat all Americans equal. And in essence, the U.S. Congress said, you're done. We're not doing that. And they took the budget and just gave it to the Advertising Council because they did better. And so at the end of the war, uh, Truman invited the Advertising Council. This still blows my mind. That It's a, it's a memo organizing all this within the historical record in which the Truman administration invites the Advertising Council leaders to come and have what they called in the document. This is what they sent to them. Let's have, quote, secret indoctrination talks, end quote, with the Secretary of War, with Truman, with the Vice President, with the leaders of the intelligence agencies. They invited these ad executives to come in to have secret indoctrination talks to see what how they could use them as the war ended. And and one of the ways they decided was religion. Uh, Now, Truman, as as you mentioned, he really went back to the same way that Roosevelt did it. He didn't know how to talk to religion and religious people without using religious institutions and leaders. And it was the exact same frustration. They just would not play along, Um, especially the Federal Council of Churches. uh, They were really convinced that in this new world, they knew best. And so they continuously sent Truman these policy um, matters, the, these documents telling him how to do it. The UN was going to solve everything. They were really uh, on the United Nations. Uh, they were con- convinced that disarmament was the wave of the future. And they kept telling Truman what to do, except whenever he would say, well, let's use this for religious unity in the world, they would, they would just scoff at him. And so eventually he bypassed them because of the Advertising Council. He, uh, it, it helped that the, the U.S. Uh, military, especially the Army, really wanted to convince Americans, especially Americans mom, American moms, that uh, their children, their sons would not be ruined going into the Army. So they started their own parallel campaign and they worked together. But it really came back to the Advertising Council. He could use them and they would say, yes, sir, that works. It fits. And so had these, we can talk about them a little more later, these massive advertising campaigns, public influence campaigns uh, that when we think about the quote unquote, holy fifties, right? This religious revival that swept America, almost all the language we use comes directly from the advertising council. Um, And those were the campaigns that, that they saw fit. And it was directed by the U S government. The white house told them what to do uh, the advertising council got their funding from corporations and they combined them all together and convinced the american people uh, that america at its heart believed in freedom and that meant religious freedom free enterprise and a military that kept the world free and all those went together in ways that could never be taken apart
1: no andrew that was that was in fact my next question what programs and propagandistic productions and campaigns did the Ad Council and U.S. military uh, PR experts employ, especially during the Truman administration? Because you bring up a few examples that are they're quite, quite prominent.
0: Yeah, this this is the big height of it. the The earliest one was called the Freedom Train. This was a coordinated effort with the Advertising Council, a group called the American Heritage Foundation, still has a a remnant today, Uh, Hollywood producers, business executives, they all got together. And and the key to this, uh, a guy named Thomas Darcy Brophy, who was the uh, ad executive who was in charge of the entire program, he defined it as reselling Americanism to Americans, That was the idea. The the freedom train was going to convince Americans to tell Americans what America was. Um, It was a real train. It went across the country. Uh, It had incredible historical documents. It's it's almost insane that they just put this on a train and sent it out. Uh, Original copies of the Constitution. um, Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Declaration of Independence. uh, Lincoln's handwritten version of the Gettysburg Address, but also the base psalm book and a lot of these, and they sent them out. and, And it was an experience. What they called them was patriotic revival meetings. That was their term. When the train would come in, they would have patriotic revival meetings and everyone would come out. And the whole point was to tell Americans what America was. And they debated it in the background when they created it. Well, what is America? I don't know. What do we tell them? And it went back and forth. The attorney general, Tom Clark, wanted to define America by liberty. And the ad council especially said, well, that won't sell. You can't talk about liberty in the American South. Right. That that's a different thing. It's it's not about equality. Right. That's the problem. Equality can't be it with liberty and it moves. They decided freedom was better. Intentionally, because freedom, if you think about it, right. Who doesn't like freedom? Right. And everyone loves freedom. But what does freedom mean? Well, being free from it's an incredibly vague concept. And that was the helpful part. Everyone loves freedom. And it was helpful because you could combine religious freedom with free market. That's what they really wanted originally. And so they sent this out. And the estimates are one third of Americans at the time participated in these patriotic revival meetings. It, it was huge. It was really helpful, and then from that, they continued on these campaigns. One was called United America. It was incredibly popular. Um, the The presidents would, uh, Truman would give these pronouncements. The, uh, the The broadcasting system would do this. Both radio and t- television would give free airtime to all of this, and it became massive movements. But the biggest by far uh, was Religion in American Life. This was the campaign when the Advertising Council stopped coordinating with other groups. It was their baby. They did it all. Uh, And the biggest example of this is uh, you can go into churches now uh, and and you could go into a Sunday school and they will talk about from the pulpit, from the class, they'll talk about how families that pray together stay together, right? This is the, the cornerstone of family values that the religious right talked about. That was an advertising campaign. Uh, It was on billboards. It was on movie posters. It was on bread. You bought bread and it had religion and American life advertisements on it. Uh, The the, number is the example of this. This one really came up in November of 1949. In that month alone, just on radio, they had over 500 million listener impressions Listener impression was the way that advertisers checked uh, their campaigns at the time. It was one person or one household hearing the campaign once. The population in 1949 was about 150 million. They had 500 million impressions in one month. We do not have campaigns on this scale anymore. And the campaign was if you're a good American, you worship at the church or synagogue of your choice, because that's what Americans do. We are religious, we worship God. But that God was an American God, an ambiguous God, a God that loved free market economics, that loved a military that protected and would never do anything to weaken the nation. And that became the driving force, the the element that connected all these together, particularly when the Eisenhower administration came along, uh, and especially in partnership with Billy Graham, it, it became the byword of Americanism, what Americans were and should be.
1: So, Andrew, I'm going to press you on a point. Uh, Yes, faith and freedom has resulted in a very top-down, skewed, Americanist, problematic notion of not only freedom, but Christianity or American religion itself. But I recently read Linda Gordon's book, Second Coming of the KKK, which talks about the the hooded Americanism of the 1920s. In 1928, uh, Al Smith was routed by Herbert Hoover, and most of the South and also many other places in the country voted explicitly against him because of his Catholicism. There was a famous article in the Atlantic by an Episcopalian who said he like the papal encyclicals say that Al Smith cannot run for president. He can't even be president without uh being obedient to the Pope. Yeah, the Pope (laughs) America. But after this campaign, the first president after Eisenhower is John F. Kennedy. Is is maybe uh is faith and freedom maybe a positive benefit of it is that it really quickly uh eliminated or or um weakened religious prejudice against both Jews and Catholics in the United States, because nineteen thirties was, you know, Father Coughlin and others very anti-Semitic period. So, could could we could we argue that faith and freedom, yes, by defining religion problematically and as an anodyne, vague system, but it nonetheless, uh, led to weakening of religious prejudice.
0: Yes, I, I think I think that's valid. Uh, there's actually uh, another book I, I looked behind me uh, to make sure. And it's Tri Faith America by Kevin Schultz, excellent book. Um, where that's his argument—that this, not necessarily to the scale of the campaigns and all this—he doesn't necessarily have all that connection, but that this concept of Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, right? This Will Herberg idea of that this is what all Americans are—that he argues exactly that. That this opened the way to the American mainstream, right? That Catholics could argue that we are American, Jews could argue we are American. They did some some absolutely embraced this. Now. The difficulty of that, I think that's true to a degree, but it's important to understand they could claim the American mainstream as long as they proved they were good patriots, right? And that good patriotic religion was defined specifically in Protestant terms, for Protestants. Again, when Roosevelt started this, he did not understand why Cyrus Adler, this Jewish representative he wrote to, could have any problem whatsoever with understanding the, you know, the Christmas star and we are guided by this to see the Savior. Like, why would that be an issue? This is all we are, right? Catholics got no problem as long as um, they, they worshipped a God that was open, was American, that loved these ideals, right? So they could, absolutely, they, they gave entrance as long as they paid the price. And the price was anything we would call the theological distinctives of those faiths, right? As long as they went along with this faith and freedom, they were okay. So it it was there. I I think it's an argument. I I think really the civil rights movement is is a way of moving toward this too, right? That um, King used this concept and threw it back on white Americans, right? The blank check that is there, that if America is opening and belonging to freedom, what does that mean for black Americans, right? There are ways that this was so big that that people could and did use it as they went along. I think the importance is that once this concept of America became defined, you see this from the mid fifties on, even those religious groups, who had been fighting for a while—liberal, conservative, Protestants with and against Catholics, and liberal and, and conservative Jews—and all this before these campaigns, they were fighting mostly over theological and doctrinal differences. Right? When you start reading this after what they're really, what they start arguing about—why the Catholics are wrong, why the liberals are conservatives—it's because their view of the United Nations or the 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 military stance right of the NATO alliance, right? It was about economics and the way it moved. They still talk about them often in kind of religious spiritual terms, but the topics of division are political. And the way that you were divided in America was whether or not you agreed and supported or opposed and critiqued this faith in freedom. Um so that, that divide was, could allow di- you know, differences and movements and access, but it, it was defined by this idea. And that itself, I, I find incredibly problematic.:
1: No, and, 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 and as I think about it, I'm reminded also of how, especially in the late 20th century, because you speak of, okay, it is a Protestant assimilationist paradigm. Like you have to embrace this very uh, vague theological position, but also these accompanying political positions. And then I, I see, look at what happened, how how Muslims, especially in the late 20th, early 21st century, were not incorporated. Not only were is there no Islam and Judeo-Christian, right? And they're, you know, sure, some people brought up like Abrahamic faith, right? Dinesh D'Souza in the early 2000s was big about that. But but that like there was something, whether it be Muslims critiquing American interventionism or Muslim practices, which were uh, considered alien to this faith and freedom, that they just couldn't join. So I, I I agree with you that like in order to to be accepted, you have to, to toe this line. So so as we, we were moving from Truman, these huge ad campaigns on the radio, the Freedom Train, lots of people are seeing it. We now – approach Eisenhower who is the apotheosis of kind of suburban white middle class 50s American religion he has his he has his 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 quote you know I want Americans to believe in any you know in religion I don't care what it is uh, not being verbatim there but how did Eisenhower continue his emphasis on not religious organizations but uh, kind of non-religious organizations to disseminate this propaganda and how did and, and how did this also lead to relationships with religious figures as opposed to institutions?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this was the big difference with Eisenhower uh, as opposed to his predecessors. He never went to religious institutions to deal with it. Uh, and, and your excellent question beforehand, well, why is that? Partly because of everything that came before him, what he learned, what what he, um, what was brought to him when he came to the White House, and partly because of his own personal views. Uh, he just, he just saw it all as nonsensical. And so for him, what mattered in that famous quote, and, and this is the deal, it's seen, and I would say rightly so, uh, as the, the epitome of shallow religion. But for Eisenhower, he didn't view it that way. He, view it as, he viewed it as, uh, pragmatic religion, helpful religion, boots on the ground religion, right? And that religion is helpful in so that it does something for people, for the nation. And so if there's no driving purpose for it, to, to him, what does it matter if you you go to, to church on Sundays and you're going to argue over the hymns or what happens in the liturgy or the colors of a vestal garment? That, that stuff's nonsensical. But religion is helpful because religion is about freedom. Right there, there's an there's in some sense Eisenhower maybe because obviously he comes from the military right World War II when when a lot of this was was moved that he he genuinely believed this faith in freedom was faith it was the best faith and so he because of the beginning the advertising council he didn't need to go to these religious institutions and organizations um, it, the. The structure was already there for him. But in addition to that, partly because of him, because of his military career, partly because of the advancement, all this, he had other allies. The American Legion was really into this. They had their massive back to God campaign. And they came to Eisenhower and said, use us. Um, he had the, the um, U.S. Information Agency, right, the, essentially the propaganda arm of the, the U.S., Partly military, but especially intelligence agencies, and and they were on board with this too. Um, but he especially had uh, this group two uh, different ministers who were really a part of the 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 anti communist campaign that come through. And one of them, Elson, was his personal pastor, basically who had baptized him, who went to First Presbyterian it was his pastor, Edward Elson, um, and the other one, Charles Lowry. They got together. And they, commit, they uh, constructed an organization, um, the, the the acronym is uh, uh, FRASCO, uh, Foundation for Religious Action in the Social and Civil Order. It's a mouthful. But they're the ones that really came up with the thing that we, again, associate with the 80s and in some sense, even with the Bush administration in the two thousand. this idea of social issues. What they said is we're not concerned about religious unity. We're not concerned about theology or doctrine. We don't care about it whatsoever. That's not what we're going to do. And this is from two ordained pastors, right? They said, that's not what it's about. What we want to do is, is use religion for, for freedom throughout the world. We want to use it for, uh, for power and motivation and influence. And so they said, we're not going to do, we're, we're not trying to, to hurt the church state divide. What we're concerned with are social issues that are neither religious nor political, but they concern both of those together. Now, later on, we know these, quote unquote, social issues is is being about. Um, LGBTQ rights, right, of of gay marriage later on or or issues of prayer in schools and the things that obviously we right now at this very time that we're recording are are major forces and impacts and and controversies in America today. At this point, their social issues were issues of uh, military preparedness, uh, issues of free market economics, uh, issues of um, of of unity not religious unity, but kind of civil unity as it comes together.
1: Downplaying
0: racial integration. That's exactly right. Not yet. Yeah, you cannot do that. That's it's only going to weaken the country. Um, no one who loves America would bring up racial injustices because all it does is divide us. Why would you want to divide us? Are you a communist? Right. These are the things that matter to them. Uh, and so their way of going about this was not these massive campaigns, probably because they didn't have to. The Ad Council was already doing it. Their idea was if you can get leaders, uh, influencers, right? This is the word that we would use today, right? Uh, Like Instagram influencers. Uh, If you get uh, religious leaders, you get Hollywood celebrities, you get political leaders. If they all start using the same language, if they are behind this, all Americans will be behind it too. And so even uh, parts of the the presidential prayer breakfast are uh, associated with this, of these um, massive conferences in Washington, D.C. with world leaders coming together. And all of this was about this same concept of faith and freedom. And that was the way that that Eisenhower, he loved it because it's useful. Right. Religion must be useful. Uh, and, And the usefulness was specifically to him, the policies that he favored, but also maybe to his credit, he thought that was best for America. And so when you get those objectives and that's good for America, it's a good thing to do, no
1: matter how you need to get there. What led to the crack up of this? It seemed that throughout the early and mid-50s in Truman and Eisenhower, it seemed that Institutions and also people were really behind this idea. This was very popular. Church attendance was way up. This is the famous, yeah, the 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 Holy fifties. Uh, Ninety-nine point something percent of people believed in God. Right, like and people were defining their faith this way. But then, like towards the late fifties, things were changing. What 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 kind of led to the weakening of this institutional push for a faith and freedom?
0: Yeah, I, I, I would say the weakening was not in the unity itself. It was the facade of the unity that all this created. Mm-hmm. Americans were never unified in, in this sense, right? Even uh, there's been fantastic work done, including in World War II, right? We think of this in some sense, rightly, of all Americans joining together to, to fight the enemy. That's good. And there's some aspect of which that's true. But especially when you bring in race and gender, uh, that was never fully true, right? This was a massive um, weakness, right? Whole challenge in this American unity during the Second World War. And the farther you get past that, uh, that facade fractures. Uh, and it fractures in part because uh, the the civil rights movement kicks into high gear, right? The argument historically, the long civil rights movement, there were movements through this through, but it really comes to challenge that idea, and rightfully so, because the language that was used to bring about this this supposed unity, this faith in freedom, is nonsensical if you simply consider the lives of black Americans. It's just, it can't be considered true about, about America or the American populace. Uh, and when, when that came to the forefront, uh, combined with... Americans uh, being confused and disillusioned, somewhat leading into Vietnam, but even with Korea, right? Going and fighting a war against the communists in a place people can't locate on a map against communists but not communists and their people in South Korea. It's all just so confusing. What is this thing? It, it just didn't hold together in those ways. And so as Americans, in reality, simply started demanding that this language be truth in reality to them, it was clear that it wasn't really about all Americans coming together and being equal. Again, the freedom train, the organizers, they rejected equality as a definition of America. Freedom was better. And so once the idea of freedom, uh, people started challenging that for it to be real,
1: the, the facade
0: just couldn't hold.
1: It almost seems that it's kind of Southern whites who were the instigators of this because of is because of if if the the visual and moral uh, imperative of the civil rights, the, like the visual character of it, and moral imperative, of it became more obvious as the decade went on. That really was only spurred by massive resistance, like the. Um, Little Rock High School or the uh, 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 killing and lynching of blacks throughout the late 1950s, uh, et cetera. So it it almost seems that like this facade wasn't destroyed by, I mean, in, in a sense, I'm not trying to deny agency to civil rights leaders, but it was just the, the this massive resistance to any form of integration that led to uh, more and more people saying, this isn't right, Like we're not unified. Obviously, we have people, we have, you know, white um, cops with German shepherds, you know, sticking them on peaceful protesters. That's right.
0: Yeah, you couldn't, uh, it was when, when people trying to, again, make the language real is when, as you say, especially white Southerners said, yeah, but we don't mean them, right? I mean, not to get, too pointed about it but this is the um the the example of this when you see especially in the MAGA movement right of make America great again the return to when America was really unified and you hear this with the language of well that's when Americans love God and they love the country and we were all together and then you bring up yeah but, but Jim Crow like what how, how does that fit? Well, the answer is it doesn't. It obviously doesn't. It can't. And in the 50s when black Americans said, but so us too, right? Well, well no, you're, we didn't mean you. right? It, it, in some sense goes back to your, your uh, question of uh, this allowing entry for Catholics and Jews in the country. Yes, as long as. And Catholics and Jews and even Muslims. I mean, your point before, you, you can think of this in the 2000s. You're right that the Muslims in America weren't included. include this and it happened. But the language that we use in the 2000s circles back to this because who are the good Muslims, the safe Muslims, the moderate Muslims? Oh, they're moderate. What does that mean? They're not really religious, right? What it really means is that they're moderate in that they accept this faith and freedom. They accept what America is. And as long as they give up all that other stuff, then they're safe and they're okay. But black Americans can't give up being black. That is the issue. The the problem with them is simply that they are black. And so including them, they can't be included because what can they give up? To make them safe enough for white Americans, nothing. They themselves are the problem. Them being humans as they are, and so it didn't fit. It couldn't fit. Uh, and so the pretending became very clearly this us versus them, this this definition of what America is. Even if the ones who, as you say, white Southerners saying you're not included, get out. We're still saying you're not included, get out. Because America is unified and we're together and we are, right? The, the language doesn't fit the reality. And yet somehow the language lived on.
1: Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for going through your book. I, I recommend all who are interested in delving deeper to pick up a copy and read Faith and Freedom uh, by Cornell University Press. So before we end uh, this wonderful discussion, Andrew, just tell me a little bit about future research projects uh, that you have planned or that you're thinking about, anything related to this kind of same concept of faith and freedom, civil religion.
0: Yeah, there, there are a few, uh, as with everyone. There, there's a few circling out there. But the biggest one that I'm working on now on my next major book project uh, is a biography of Will Campbell, Will D. Campbell. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He uh, if he's if he's well known, he's generally known as being, quote unquote, the white guy in the civil rights movement. Uh, he, he was there at the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was behind the scenes at virtually every major protest you can think of. He was the, the personal representative of the National Council of Churches during the protests. He is a, a fascinating individual because he does not fit this divide of being conservative or being liberal. Um, he... His concept of faith, he called himself a bootleg preacher, right? He was raised Southern Baptist in Mississippi, Southern Mississippi, um, came to be um, a a champion of civil rights. But more famously, uh, when especially Stokely Carmichael told white allies in the civil rights movement, hey, we don't need you to tell us that we have rights. We know that. We know we're human. Could you please go tell your white neighbors? Because they're the ones who don't seem to know. Campbell essentially said, well, he's right. And so he spent most of the rest of his career uh, ministering to whites, including racist whites around Tennessee. Uh, He he became known, it's not really accurate, but as the quote unquote chaplain of the KKK. It's not true. But there was uh, a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan that was uh, convicted, sent to federal prison. And he ministered to him, not at all because he believed, obviously, in what his his personal racist beliefs, but because he was a human being that was in jail and his understanding of Jesus was you visit the prisoners. And so I'll even visit him because he's the one I want to visit the least. Um he once called the president of the Southern Baptist uh convention a jackass and a bastard uh on a live television interview uh simply because he said, Well do you think that uh racial integration Racial justice is part of the the ethic of Jesus, and he said yes. And he said, so what are we doing for the Southern Baptist Convention? To do this. He said, well, it's complicated, and we're not sure, and we go through, and we have to take it slow. And Campbell said, so you don't think Jesus is right? Like he he just doesn't fit. Uh, and so that's that's what I'm looking forward to, uh, and is challenging looking at his views and his world, and and how it fits and doesn't fit in the way that we like to talk about religious and political divides now.
1: No, Andrew. I think that sounds uh, really fascinating. Really seems to, I think, problematize also American religious participation in the civil rights. Yeah, uh, Bill Campbell. Did he go by Bill Campbell? No, Will. Yeah, he went by oh, Will. He went by Will Campbell. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, I, I probably, I probably heard the name when I was in Tennessee, but it's more. Uh, it's no, yeah, would yeah, that be. Just, I don't remember the specifics, but nonetheless, I, I can't wait to yeah. to uh, to read uh, your, what you have to say about William Campbell. Uh, And again, thank you so much, Andrew, for participating in this podcast. Very much appreciated. Uh, Thank you to all who have listened. You've been listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day.